Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. Welcome, folks. Welcome to the 150th episode of the Napoleon Assist. Welcome to the 175,000th download special. And welcome, as my guest said before we started recording, to the terror. Yes, we are doing an episode that actually in this case isn't one that's fallen out of my head. It was requested by one of my Patreon supporters. We are looking at Napoleonic France and questioning, was it a state of terror? I'm just going to let you kind of pause and absorb the scope of kind of double meanings and double entendres there in a very ham-fisted show title. Joining me to unpick this, well, we had to go for one of your favourites, didn't we? The The recent lineup has been an all-star cast. We've got to keep the, the high quality going for you guys. So I have distinguished professor of the history of international relations at utrecht university author of fighting terror after napoleon how europe became secure after 1815 which i should say was the recipient of a very prestigious prize this year the duke darenberg prize for the best book on european history also co-editor of securing europe after napoleon regular contributor to napoleon assist all-round lovely individual Beatrice de Graaf is back in the house and today is going to enlighten us all on the topic that really is her bread and butter terror during this period. I'm going to look at the Napoleonic regime as a way of trying to unpick this. Welcome back Beatrice, great to see you again, how are you doing? Thank you Zach, so happy to be here and talk about one of my favourite topics, the terror. Yeah, you did say in a sort of slightly um, tongue-in-cheek way that your life is all about the terror and, and you love the terror, which I, th I feel we need to kind of just contextualise um, because that's not to imply that Beatrice is a psychopath by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just that this is what she does. This is her expertise. 
Um, so please don't think that I've got some kind of raving loon on the show this afternoon. That is not the case. We're talking about context. Let's pack some context into this because full disclosure, in fact, somebody somebody criticized me for this the other day. Um, I bash Napoleon on this podcast. You might have noticed. Um, that's not a case of me telling you what to think, as somebody suggested. That's merely a case of merely a case of me presenting the facts as I see them. But that's a one side. We often, me, others, bash Napoleon for the police state under his regime. And yet this wasn't unique to him. This was a kind of unknown phenomenon. So prior to the revolution, how did the secret police and state censorship work in France? Yes, thank you for that question. And that, that, that really is a great debate and a very wide debate to tap into because there's different schools of thought on the continuities of the terror, continuities of the terror between the terror regime by Robespierre and the subsequent revolutionary regimes and then over to Napoleon. So there's a whole debate there. Uh, then there is another debate which says, well, the terror wasn't so novel to the French Revolution as such, neither to Napoleon, but it was already institutionalized and it was already there in place under Louis XVI at the Bourbon government. So, and there's there's still there's quite some some discussion, quite some some gaps there also in in the research because on the one hand you have researchers like Lynn Hunt and um, um, uh, François Furet, very important uh, French historian, and they make the case that it was well, the, the more the classic the classic uh, argument that it was the war that um, brutalized the revolutionaries. They felt beleaguered from all sides. Uh, it was in internal dynamics under the pressure of the war that brought about the terror, and it wasn't there from the beginning. There's others like uh, uh, Timothy Tackett who say, well, no, not so much. It was something that the revolutionaries sort of copied from the Bourbon regime and they copied it because the Bourbon regime actually already unleashed terror against them, not with the, the big capital terror, but it was a regime based on a court police and this court police was completely unaccountable. It only accounted for its deeds vis-a-vis uh, -vis the king himself, Louis. Uh, then you had other types of marechaussee, which was which were already in place as well. And uh, for example, there's an excellent article written by Simon Burroughs in, in English, who demonstrated that French secret agents, uh, officials from the secret police were dispatched, not just in France, but also to London, for example, to kill and maim and poison French exile revolutionaries. So they, 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 they were right in feeling that they themselves had been terrorized. So there's more continuation between Louis XVI regime, the Bourbon regime, than the revolutionary regime and Napoleonic regime than we perhaps may think. So I I have to admit that I'm more in the Timothy Tackett camp than in the Lynn Hunt, uh, François Furet camp. Just to be really awkward, I kind of like both. I'm sitting on the fence here. I can see sort of elements of both in the sense that you can understand how the um the the revolutionary regime 
would have in time transitioned towards greater use of terror, as we know, you know, it kind of descends this slippery slope of increasing radicalization. But that's not to say that in having this kind of situation, not quite forced upon them, but in kind of going undergoing this transition, that doesn't mean that they can't then pick up the apparatus that has gone before. You know, this idea that everything is completely new and radical I've never really kind of bought that. And this is one of the things that I think is going to come out quite strongly from this episode, that actually what Napoleon's doing, perhaps, and this is my gut, isn't a million miles away from either what's gone before or what other nations are doing. So I, I and, you know, we'll, we'll pause yeah. on that question and, and kind of unpick that in, in a bit. Um but I, I kind of see, I'm going to sit on the fence and say I, I see a route to incorporate both into one. There we go. That That's the yeah. white thesis. That, that that's, that's a great starting position. Sitting on a fence is never a very stable position. So let me try and um, push you over to one side, Zach. Um, about Napoleon and and what came before him, well, there is this, this very performative, very dem- demonstrative um um, moment of terror, which which the Allied powers and um, uh, the foreign powers who waged war against Napoleon held very strongly against him. And it was not so much that he started the war as such, but it was the murder of the Duc d'Enghien. Um, don't know if you remember this. The Duc d'Enghien was murdered on the 8th of February 1804 and he was kidnapped. He was residing just out of France and Napoleon thought that he was going to topple him in 1804 just before he had um, made himself an emperor and he felt that um, the last prince of the Condé, which d'Enghien was, that he was about to enter France on a mission to um, uh, stage a coup. So what Napoleon did was, you could say, a preemptive strike. He sent his uh, secret agents, they kidnapped uh, Duc d'Angers, and um, he was hauled into France and there um, uh, on the fortress, in the fortress of Vincennes, which still is, by the way, the military archive uh, of France nowadays, if you go there, and he was shot by a firing squad um, in the middle of the night, I think. Or in a day, I'm not sure, at least in 1804. The thing is that for the Allied powers, this this was not just routine. This was not was not just a military act. It was outside of the military affairs. It was an execution which was not uh, um, upheld by any legal procedure of legal process. And for Napoleon, it was just a revenge act. But for the others, for the outsiders, it it put Napoleon outside the pill of civilization. And this is something that explicitly was held against him in 1815, in March 1815, when the Treaty of Mutual Security was concluded between the powers of the Seventh Coalition. And they said, well, perhaps not after France, but after Napoleon, he put himself outside the pill of civilization. And what he did was plain terror. And there's no international legal situation, law, legitimizing this. This is part of the terror. And for Metternich, for example, uh, this was 
another um, uh, symptom of the, the, the widespread terror in France. So Metternich did, Metternich did not make a distinction between uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette guillotined in Paris and the Duc d'Angers and Guillaume by Napoleon shot uh, before the firing squad. It was both an, still an, an, an example of that same terror. So I think you're right in that, that uh, the tactics that were deployed and adopted by the revolution regime and Napoleon they were on a par for the Allied powers. And at the same time, for them, this was something that you just didn't do. You just didn't put a prince, the Condé, a royal prince, for a firing squad. But then again, the question is, was this indeed something that set Napoleon apart from the previous uh, regimes? And if we go back to Louis V, not the 16th, but the 5th, he did give his secret agents uh, full credit and a carte blanche, a license to kill uh, uh, even, to go abroad and kill his oppositional uh, liberalists, as he called them. So the writers and the distributors of, of rumors and negative things about the royal house. So they weren't even military opponents, but... They were playwrights, um, politicians, lawyers, journalists that were put on a hit list by Louis V's agent. So Napoleon would argue, well, I'm I'm not so different from what Louis V did. I'm just trying to uh, consolidate my reign and uh, rule out and extinguish my opponents. So you see, I mean, okay, I now realize that I'm not really pushing you off the fence. I'm still making the case that you can see both continuity and discontinuity here. But I, I like the way these these perceptions of such terror or hits terrorist attacks. That's pretty much what it is. It was not in the in the in the, in the framework of an ordinary war. It was not uh, supported by a verdict by a judge. It was in peacetime an act of revenge or political terrorism against an opponent. But Louis V did that, and Napoleon did this as well, as did the revolutionaries. Just a quick question. Louis V or Louis XV? Um, I'm very sorry. Louis XV. Okay. Just, uh, just uh, I mean, the, the only reason that I ask is there are a lot of Louis in French history. Yeah. And I'm, as you're saying it, <laughs> I'm thinking, is this going all the way back to Louis V? No, 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 no. Sorry, um, sorry. It's just... No, don't uh, worry. I, uh, I spoke German today and then Dutch and now English and reading French and I just mis misspelled it. It's Louis the Fifteenth. Sorry. Not at all. Not at all. But just the the way you just casually say. So earlier I was reading German. I've been speaking in Dutch. Now I'm speaking in English. I've also been reading French. Um, it's not a it's not a flex, but just the the mind blowing ability to jump from language to language. Um, because it's well known on on this show and amongst um, the Twitter community that I can't speak English particularly well, <laughs> let alone another language. Um, and the abuse that I rightly get for failed attempts to use other tongues is 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 profound and and considerable, and as I say, completely justified. Well, for me, numbers are always a tongue twister. So sorry for that. There was a meme actually that went out um on on social media which looked at how different nations say different numbers and i think this one was something <laughs> like 89 um and it was hilarious because it's like everyone says eight and then nine or, or 80 plus nine yeah, not, not the serious. french enough that, that that's exactly always it's like let's let's, let's do a sum yeah, yeah. whilst we're speaking you know four twenties 
and and a nine you know, and for the, the yeah Danish and actually one. actually i i can make a case why i dropped the 10 because if you pronounce something in italian sometimes they only pronounce the last uh, number well no that's not that's a lame excuse i try to make something up here we need to stop digging and bring it back yeah. to the history um, yeah, I, could i make could i bring in an, another argument um why um you could consider after all that that the police state and the terror regime that came after the revolution were different you don't ever need any invitation from me beatrice go yes. ahead no no it was kind of a rhetorical question sorry but, uh, <laughs> no the point is that um you could discuss the, the the question of the security state which we are you could discuss it in an in a more administrative bureaucratic uh, way and just check whether uh, in the ancient regime uh, times there was always also a secret police in place with agents and the kind of practices that they conducted and we've just established that they did so this is the more administrative bureaucratic um, level of, of discussing making a comparison but you could also ask the question about the legitimization the, the constitutional framework in which the police state was embedded so police state isn't just a state of um, random brutal terror it's police state kind of signals that that the repression that the terror is part of a system is constitutionally legitimized and that was something that started to um, uh, develop after the french revolution and briefly about the, the term terror this is also why i indeed um I'm, I'm fond of studying concepts intellectual concepts in history intellectual history because the term terror as such uh came to denounce denounce completely different things after the revolution uh, before 1789 before the 90s more or less you could find references in pamphlets and newspapers to terror as well so the the word terror did exist and terror oftentimes also was connected to what the king did. But the interesting thing is uh, that terror was oftentimes considered a benign instrument. It was the terror dei, the timor dei. It was um, derived from this biblical notion uh, of the, 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 the terror of the gods, so the terror of God, who would wield his sword to brandish and punish his enemies and um, hail to the citizen held to the subject that lived in a country where this king wielded his sword to protect you. So terror was an instrument, a sword in the hands of the kings given to that king by divine grace. So it was actually kind of a derivation of the divine power, um, power of the creation, the sublime power of the gods. And that was now resting in the hands of the king. So terror, terror had been part of the political vocabulary, but it delineated the righteous, the salutary, the majestic terror of God so to install fear in the enemies. And uh, the victims of the terror were the enemies at the gates, the foreign armies or the invaders. And that changed during the times of the revolution and with robespierre's reign of terror the concept morphed and you can see that happening in pamphlets and newspapers it became from a divine instrument a more secular uh, sort it became the terror of the people the tyranny of the multitude um, it became a term that could be used even to discredit political adversaries so from the divine uh, realm of things the terror was now attached to plain humans 
became more mundane and it was attached to the reign of terror in a completely secularized fashion. And for example, in the Netherlands, uh, when the, the, the uh, 1795, the stadtholder left the country and a French regime was implemented, or well, Dutch-French regime, the Batavian uh, government, it was called the Batavian terror. But the Batavian terror was quite bloodless in the Netherlands. We didn't have guillotines or, or much like that. That's perhaps why I'm so interested in French and German and English history for that matter. Um, so the semantic field of terror, terrorism shifted and now became connected not just to from the divine to the secular, it also became connected to revolution, to anarchy, to chaos and to disorder. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is that after 1794, 1795, terror was a new idea, an ideology that gave legitimation to the police state. So the police state was not now anymore just the ploy in the hands of the dynasty and the king's secret court police. It was now a police that had to enforce the terror of the people. And um, that's also why it became such a collective scare and people were so outraged about this in um, uh, outside the French borders, also within France, because it was now directed not just against concrete enemies of the king, but against whole categories, against priests, against noblemen, against emigres. So I think that's important to, to, to make that distinction that you can discuss terror on this more administrative bureaucratic level, but you also need to have this discussion on the ideology, the idea of terror. Mind blown. Um, we, we have significantly rabbit hole at this stage and I kind of want to keep rabbit holding, but I'm also trying to work out where we go from here. Um, I'm going to be irritating and just double back a second um to what you were saying about the assassination let's call it the execution of the duke d'angian i've probably ruined the pronunciation we'll, we'll go with Beatrice's pronunciation over mine because she's a linguist and i'm not mm -hmm. um for me this is the moment where things start to particularly go sour with the napoleonic regime and then of course after that you've got the creation of what is fundamentally a monarchy through the emperor system and the, the hereditary um, style that, that becomes adopted in the wake of that. Um, and this sense, I, I think for a lot of European powers, there's this sense of Napoleon's meant to represent a break from the, the old style of revolutionary government right 1799 is meant to be the end of the revolution and so with that should go the apparatus inverted commas of the revolution be it the guillotine be it the terror uh, and so on but that inclination to have if you like a, a rerun of 1792 is kind of a, a problem for other european states there's this sort of sense well he's he's as bad as all the others that have have been ruling in France during this period, because he's using the same methods, he's doing the same things. But I wonder, is it worse because he violates um, not just that kind of sanctity if you don't chop a king's head off, even though Britain did it, and Britain. <laughs> I mean, let's let's just pause and acknowledge the uh, the hypocrisy of that for a moment here. So we beat the French to it by about 150 years 
And yet when um, the French do, we turn around and go, this is totally unacceptable, really. This, this sort of thing can't be tolerated anymore. Um, so that hypocrisy aside, this sense that he's willing to do it, but all that Napoleon that is, is, is willing to do the same thing, but then also violates territorial sovereignty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to do it okay if you know the subsequent story of the napoleon was you know that napoleon doesn't have a huge amount of respect for territorial sovereignty see spain and portugal um but nonetheless the fact that he's prepared to do these things does that mean that the concern the fear if you like kind of goes up a level with the other european powers whereas this there's this sense of well maybe you can do a deal with napoleon because he's a bit different is there suddenly this sort of disquiet of Mm, have we misjudged this guy? Yes, although people like Metternich, for example, and the emigres, of course, they were still trying to keep this conviction uh, strong uh, in the capitals of Europe and the courts of Europe that he was basically cut off the same cloth. He was an armed Jacobin. And uh, although there was this this period between 1799 and 1804, where you could say, or perhaps even 1804, between 1806, you could argue that there was a relative calm and stability uh, to the empire. Well, not really, but a bit perhaps in, in, in Europe, Western Europe. Um, still within the Napoleonic Empire, and even before it was an empire, during the consulate, uh, there still was terror. And uh, if we go back a little bit, uh, for example, in 1801, uh, there had just been an attempt to assassinate Napoleon himself. And only three weeks later, he unleashed what was called the consular terror. And um, the consul, Napoleon, still consul then, he blamed radical Republicans for the machine infernal. So you already hear the terror ruminations here here and napoleon wanted revenge this is also what he said about the duc d'angin he was entitled to have his revenge because he was sure and uh fouché's spies had had alluded that to him and told him so that d'angin was up to no good against him and he felt that he was completely entitled to do so and he also felt in order to terminate the reign of terror the anarchy Anarchy was was an, uh, a bad word at the time. Um, there was a call for immediate reprisals against anarchists and the terrorists who still were attacking the nation in the person of its leader. So the, the assassination attempt on Napoleon was constructed, was framed as an attempt to resort back to the revolution. So you can see here a kind of an, an escalation ladder, a radicalization process where the revolutionary terror breathes, uh, uh, gives birth to new uh, waves of terror. And, uh, the, for example, Fouché uh, already put up lists of, of dozens of deportees who had to either leave France or they were arrested, uh, they were executed. Uh, so the vengeance was still there. So the, the, the consulate terror was less widespread and less indiscriminate than the terror uh, under Robespierre. That was that was that was really indeed completely anarchistic, but there, were, there was still terror going on now, but in a more centralized fashion. Uh, but again, the other echo of the terror, and um, this is again, I have to give him credit for it. Howard G. Brown, who wrote an excellent uh, paper on this, and he makes the case that the echoes of the terrorism of the Robespierre regime. Are still present under Napoleon because everything he does is for the salut public and the, the peace, the, the harmony of the people, the health of the, uh, the public. 
And that's that's exactly the same way in which the terror of the, the secular terror of the revolution was um, supported and legitimized. So you could say that there wasn't really a breach. It was just waves and echoes of the revolutionary terror that persisted and that were adopted by Napoleon himself. And even more so, he also reverted back to Louis XV, I'm putting it right here, the assassination attempts and the foreign, uh, the, 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 the secret agents by the court police that were dispatched to wipe out and to neutralize any, any political opponent. So it was there as well. I don't know if that makes sense. What I'm trying to do is this kind of, of paint a picture of, of more continuities, appropriation. Of course, there are breaches and Napoleon himself is a breach. But he was already there before he became emperor. So, and and his his kind of centralized terror, security politics, you could say. Perhaps it was less terror. It was more authoritarian security politics. But his was also a police state, and a police state not in the sense uh, like Robespierre had um, initiated and and inaugurated it in the sense that everyone had to ideologically bend to the fanatical ideas of the revolution. It was more police states in the sense that people had to be brought in line to support his war machine, to give their blood tax, not the conscription. And uh, any opponent, anyone who tried to 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 um, persecute him or stage a coup or even a, a leached coup attempt like the Duc d'Angers against him had to be eradicated immediately. Here, Napoleon is as radical as his predecessors. I'm going to play devil's advocate in Napoleon's favor for a second. I would an never, odd never have expected you to do so, but go ahead. I know that sound that everybody can hear is all of the Napoleonist listeners falling off their chairs in shock at the fact that those words have just come out of my mouth. Um, is Napoleon subjected to a terror of sorts himself through these assassination attempts, through the kind of... So there's, there's always this argument, isn't there, amongst the pro and anti-Napoleon camps about the extent to which the... Um, ancien regime powers, because that's fundamentally what we're dealing with in the other European nations at this time, um, were ever willing to accept the Bonaparte regime in terms of legitimacy as an organisation that could be dealt with in the longer term. And this, from this, you get this kind of argument about did Napoleon actually want peace and actually had war foisted upon him by the coalition powers? My views on that are well known. We'll park those for a moment. But <laughs> That sense of he's subject to assassination attempts. Um, there is this question of stability and legitimacy and recognition of his regime for quite a while. You know, sure, um, with the, the 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 birth of his son um, in in eighteen eleven, that that's just, that thing kind of starts to change. That this is why he's pursuing um, a marriage to any really I think would have done um, into any royal house within Europe again to try and secure that legitimacy but with that sort of that not being present for a, a significant part of his reign and with these attempts on his life and with rumours at least circulating about coup attempts is Napoleon subjected to a form of terror? Yes no and that that's that's always one of the great dangers. If terror is unleashed, what is real and what's perceived, that the phantom terror, Adam Zamoyski calls it. And 
I think he overstates the phantom part uh, as opposed to the real terror part. But for Napoleon, the phantom terror was very real. And uh, uh, several attempts on his life were committed and assassination attempts uh, carried out and, and they failed. Um, but, but the interesting thing is, is that in as much as he tries to end the revolutionary regime, because that is his ticket into office as consul, and he, he, he does try to make the repression and the terror, he, he does try to translate or morph the, 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 the playing, the brutal terror, the, the random terror into a more predictable and a more centralized uh, form of adjudication. For example, during the revolutionary uh, regime, the Robespierre regime, you had these mobile commissions that carried out uh, um, ad hoc executions and then under Napoleon special tribunals were installed which was a market improvement there were still no juries there were still no appeals uh, but there was at least now again a regular judicial procedure um, and there were no whole blanket categories of, of emigre people noble widows of priests executed it was rebels bandits armed robbers uh, people who were considered villains by most of the population and also of course napoleon's opponents who were put uh, for the uh, in front of the firing squad or guillotined guillotine was still there of course so th the thing was that napoleon tried to convince the population that the time of terror had now passed and that he would now secure the liberties of the french but in the name of security and uh, up against both the threat of the foreign invasions and internal civil war he still worked with instruments of terror the special tribunals still were special tribunals. There were still executions taking place. People were still being arrested. And uh, increasingly after 1806, 1810, after the continental blockade, uh, he tried to enforce his reign of terror uh, by spies, by people who had to uh, arrest and apprehend uh, uh, not just brigands, but also people who were engaged in the black market, um, in smuggling. For example, in my hometown where I live, in Utrecht, there was an, um, an, um, a, a kind of a dungeon, a cachot. It was created explicitly for people who had not paid heed to the French directions. So it still was, a, a, it was perhaps not a reign of terror, but it was a police state. It was a security regime. And in the name of the French liberties, everyone who was considered to stay in the way, stand in the way of these liberties, was removed by force, by executions, by arrests, by banishments. Um, yeah, and, and this still was an echo of the original terror. And I'm not I'm not saying that Napoleon didn't have a case to make. Yes, he was um, beleaguered. He, he was attacked, but he was the one who um, escalated the level of terror even further. I mean, he was the one who, who started the wars. He was the one who went out of the French territory to uh, kidnap the Duc d'Anguillen. I mean, it's not that he stayed within the limits or tried to de-escalate the terror. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For once, I'm not going to caveat that with any kind of Napoleon bashing. Um, partly because I don't think any is necessary, quite frankly. You've done quite a remarkable job yourself. Um, I want to talk about apparatus, if I can, and, and need and intent with this. And we've touched on this already in terms of aims and objectives, but... Things like state control of the media, use of the secret police. What's the the end goal here? Why is there a need? Why does Napoleon feel a need to do this and to try and kind of shepherd popular opinion in a particular direction? Because this is the one we always talk about, right? The fact that the number of newspapers in Paris drops from something like 80 down to four over the course of, of his rule. This kind of effort to control what people are reading, why the insecurity? Is this a kind of uh, a sign of fragility or sort of um, paranoia within the Napoleonic regime? Because from the outside, I mean, look at what the guy achieves. You can't argue with the battlefield success. And you can't argue with the fact that with that battlefield success comes considerable wealth for the French nation in the short term, granted. So why the need to embark on this oh that that's that's a really good question um and again it, it's still not really settled um if if we start for example with um Fouché, napoleon's uh, minister uh, of police and Fouché was already uh, joseph Fouché, he was minister of police already in um before napoleon and when Napoleon came into office, Napoleon at first wasn't quite decided upon the question where the Ministry of Police would fit in his overall scheme of government. And of course, he needed, uh, he was always in need of accurate information, um, most particularly about military intelligence, about foreign powers, Britain, Prussia, Austria. And he knew that in order to wage his campaigns, in order to detect, uh, preemptively detect perhaps foreign innovations, foreign campaigns, uh, l'esprit, the public within these foreign countries, he needed to have his intelligence in place. 
that's for one what he needed. So it was he, he was a general after all. So he needed information to support his military campaigns. And the second thing is, we already discussed this before, he needed to thwart any attempt on his life, uh, on the attempt of the representative of the head of the new nation. So uh, any plotting, any any attempts of assassination needed to be um, uncovered in time. And that's also why he needed Fouché with his military police. If that in itself escalated into something more horrible, into something more pervasive, um, more ideological, uh, there's still there's still disunity among amongst historians. I mean, how ideological was Napoleon really? Wasn't he just a general? Um, well, I mean, he did uh, implement the civil code. He did implement a concordat with the Catholic Church. He did not go and persecute the priests anymore. So he did try to stabilize the country internally at some point because, of course, he needed to have the, the support level um, high enough to support his military campaigns abroad and um, exerted taxes, of course. He could also have been more brutal with the people plotting against them at the Opera plot. He could have executed all the people on the list of Fouché. He didn't do it. He, he banned them. He could have killed Madame de Stael, who was his arch enemy. He didn't. He, he banned her. So you see, he could have been more brutal. He wasn't. Why wasn't that so? Was he a moderate? No, not so. Not, I don't think so. He, he was a general and he was very much aware. And, and I think that's also why he and Fouché worked together. They were both, in a sense, children of the revolution. Some people say Napoleon was an 18th century person. Yeah, perhaps. But he was also a, a, a product of the revolution in the sense that he knew that uh, even if you were a person without great standing, great wealth, and he wasn't, he was just from a minor nobility uh, from, from Corsica. So he wasn't, he wasn't that famous and he didn't have that, that uh, positionality to become what he would become without the revolution and without l'esprit public, the spirit of the people. And he knew with, and I think Zach, you, you, you also wrote about this, uh, he was brilliant in mobilizing the masses, mobilizing his army um, with the grand bulletins, uh, rallying people around him, sowing all kinds of fake news um, just to convince the people that, that he was on um, his way to victory. So I still think, so my take would be that you have to consider the police state that the Bonaparian created, not as an end in itself, but as a means to support his military purposes. And I think that the, the bulletins of the Grand Armée are a case in point. And Fouché also supported, uh, Fouché, Fouché was kept in office by Napoleon in as much and as long as he supported Napoleon's military goals. We could rabbit hole further, but you've mentioned the big name within this topic that we can't not explore. And that is, of course, Fouché. You can't talk secret police in France and not discuss the guy. You've talked about how he had this role within the revolutionary government prior to Napoleon's takeover. But what's his origin story? What's he doing pre-revolution? Oh, no, Fouché is a really interesting person. Uh, he, he studied and he wanted to become a teacher and he was quite clever and he worked at colleges. So he could also e easily have been a professor or, some, or something like that. He knew uh, Maximilien Robespierre. Um, and then 
he was quite anti-clerical, it was anti the Catholic Church, but he came from a small village, but he came from quite wealthy family and was often forget forgotten. He came from a bourgeois family who had um, a huge plantations abroad and no not plantations sorry they were they were uh, quite involved in the slave trade that's how his family got their monies and um interestingly for Fouché was quite an ambivalent figure so he was all for the dechristianization movement against the catholic church against luxury and wealth but on the other hand he was the one who was in favor of of keeping the slave trade in place so didn't quite fit in there and uh, uh, he was very enthusiastic about the revolution um, he was you know, the, the blood of the criminals fertilizes the soil of liberty is one of his citations um, but then gradually he sees he, he, he sort of morphs more in the direction of wanting to keep the order. So he sees that his the anti-clerical, the anti-Christianization, the, 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 the revolutionary energy um, unleashes all kinds of atrocities, but also brings about anarchy. And that's something that and I think he and Napoleon are on a par uh, on this. They don't like anarchy. They, they want to have some kind of stable political level of support. And he just wanted to keep the power himself, Fouché. Um, didn't want to be executed himself, obviously. Uh, and he even was, uh, for, for example, he was briefly away in the Netherlands, safe and sound. And then when he came back in 1799, became minister of police to curb the excesses that the revolutionary agents had unleashed. So he had been one of the revolutionary um, excessive agents himself but then gradually he felt that that would upend his power base and uh, he became the instrument of keeping anarchy at bay so he's very ambivalent and he was a free mason as well why does he seem to be so good at this because this is the thing right that Fouché kind of props up Napoleon on occasion without somebody as competent as Fouché running secret police there's very much this sense that napoleon would have struggled in terms of kind of public inverted commas control is there any sense of him why he had a particular talent for this role yes i i think fouché was the born intrigant he was such a master of plotting or a master of intriguing i think we can hardly start to understand how capable and how widespread he was like a spider in the web of all the news reports and the intelligence reports in france and and even abroad and he was very very clever and i looked into the files of fouché in the last days of the, the french regime 1830 1415 and he was still plotting his way back then um so what he did, for example, is he collected, well, that we know that, but it's still, if you see that on your table, he had masses of dossiers, of files on every single person with some statue in France. He, he even collected dirt. Uh, what's the, the term again in, in now in um, nowadays? Uh, compromat. He was collecting compromat 
all along on, on, on any important figure of French public life and on Napoleon himself as well. So everyone knew that uh, Fouché could not be touched because in his fault that that there was dynamite. So every file in itself was dynamite enough. And he was also very good in creating allegiances and uh, in making friends, or at least so-called alleged friends. And he also was one of the inventors of the term, and I think I mentioned this before in other podcasts, but I love it so much, fausse nouvelle, fake news. And here comes the ideological element uh, back in place. I, mean, I, I told you before that the, the terror is an, an ideological idea, which was very much um, formative for the terror regime under Robespierre. And then Napoleon, it became more an instrument to keep Napoleon's military campaigns in power. But Fouché still had this ideological element to it. And what Fouché wanted to control was the esprit public. Because both knew, Napoleon and Fouché knew that esprit public, that spirit of the masses, had unleashed the revolution. They had toppled a king before. They had put people under the guillotine. So l'esprit public is is particularly dangerous if you are in power and they knew that themselves very well so what Fouché could could wanted to collect was everything every single rumor every single bad news good news fake news that was swiveling around the coffee shops and you have to also bear in mind that since the 18th century the coffee houses were an element of public life before that even already in in the uk in britain and in the netherlands but in france as well so people were going outside and they were sharing newspapers newspapers were laid out in these coffee shops and for most people, um, subscription was too expensive, but they were sharing the newspapers in the cafe houses, reading about it, chattering away, drinking chocolate, which was considered quite um, an oppositional uh, drink as well. And Fouché sent his spies into these coffee houses to collect the fake news reports in order to have his eye um, on the heart of, of the people what was brewing in the capital. And of course he was sowing the seeds of, of fake news himself as well. And he may have staged several plots and then uh, thwarted them himself to make the case that he was such a great minister of police. So there's still still enough to do research about it, Fouché. There's still lots of it in the dark. So interesting. I love the kind of thing of, yeah, there's this plot, I've just thwarted it for you, but actually it was of my making. You know, to, to, like I like the analogy of a spider um, and and the web. What kind of reputation does he have in France? Is he one of these people that sort of universally feared? And you know, French children are told to be scared of Fouché. I thought, you know, this bogeyman is going to come and take you away. Or, or do ordinary French people just not even know that he exists because he's able to extract himself from the court? I mean, I say that. Um, but those close to Napoleon obviously know that he exists, and the, there are these accusations that the reason that some generals particularly don't do particularly well is because Fouché doesn't like them, and so Fouché's got this agenda, and it's all it's all Fouché's fault. So I'm just curious about whether or not there is this common knowledge about the guy and what he's doing. Oh, that's um, well, I I couldn't for sure now give a summary and uh, an account of, of how Fouché is being perceived and what his legacy in France is. Um, I think for the French, if you compare, for example, how a politician in the Netherlands or in Germany on the one hand or in France is considered, in the Netherlands and Germany, they would be more 
weighed and balanced against the principle of Gesinnungsethik. What were these guys' motives? What was he or she up to? Did they do something halfway decent? And in, in France, it's more the Verantwortungsethik. How did he do it? And Fouché was, was, yeah, inevitably, he was one of the most canning politicians. He was one of the most um, intriguing uh, uh, persons there was. He was the perf perfect villain for any plot that you want to, 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 to uh, set up. And it, you, for, what, what a good comparison would be is comparing with Talleyrand, and this, this other one. Um, and Talleyrand was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, equally long in office as uh, Fouché had been. But Talleyrand never really got this, this, this imprint that he was a villain, that he was completely nihilistic. And Fouché, I think overall the perception of Fouché is more negative than for Talleyrand. So they were both considered... Uh, uh, yeah, windfan. How do you say that in English? That they they turn their their noses to to every new wind that 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 there's blowing. Uh, turncoats. So he was considered a major turncoat, as was Talleyrand, because they were in service. Uh, at least Fouché was in service in the Revolution, then in the Napoleon, as was Talleyrand, and then under Louis the Sixth, uh, the Eighteenth, uh, when he came back, and then again to Napoleon, and again to Louis the Eighteenth. So it's unbelievable that they kept him in office and took him back. Um, but they knew that Louis XVIII and even Wellington, the Duke of Wellington advised Louis XVIII when he came back from Ghent to take Talleyrand and Fouché on board again because they were running all the shows in France. You couldn't rule France without the two of them. They had all the portfolios on their table. Um, but did this did, did this didn't last long? Fouché and Talleyrand uh, quit or were acquitted uh, uh, a couple months later when the Paris Treaty, when the, the peace treaties were concluded, they weren't necessary anymore. So interesting, isn't it? That this idea that well, if you really want to run France, you need these guys. Um, it just is a testament to how deeply embedded they become in the in the fabric of government of France during this period. If I can, I'd like to stay with the kind of the average person theme, because you were talking about, you know, gathering in, in chocolate coffee houses and, and drinking chocolate and, and all the rest of it. How do how does the average person feel in inverted commas feel state control? Because this is obviously a very different age to the one where we kind of tend to think or that we tend to think of when we think of secret police and state police, because there's that inclination to instantly associate that with fascist regimes, communist regimes, but those are 20th century products. You know, there's a hundred years in between what we associate most obviously with state control, you know, Nazi regime, communist regime, um, and what's going on in the early 19th century. So what kind of impact does it have on people from, on a day-to-day sort of -day basis? Ah, that's difficult to, to, to state because, um, well, the centralization was there and the uh, the tendency and the, the ambition to keep l'esprit public under control in order to prevent new uprisings, new revolutions from taking place. So it was very centralized. And uh, as I said, there were agents and there was a secret police, an haute police, as it was called. Uh, so set apart from the normal police that just did deal with the mundane criminal affairs. Um, but 
in as much as you weren't engaged in plotting against Napoleon, if you were not engaged in open opposition uh, by means of the pen, the pen and the, and the word, um, you could sort of avoid and steer clear from these these uh, uh, effects of Napoleonic police state. So the thing is with Napoleon, as I said, well, he was very much in control of the army, of conscription, taxation, that needed to be in place. Anyone sabotaging that would have gotten, uh, would have become a target of the secret police. And the people that were engaging in um, libels, as it was called, and Napoleonic, Napoleonic regime. And I think that's what, what's, uh, again, uh, gives it a continuity with both the ancient regime, but perhaps even with the revolutionary regime, it was occupied with controlling uh, not just the behavior, but also the hearts and minds of the people in as much as they gave vent to it. So unbridled individualism, which the revolution had evoked, uh, could not longer be allowed. So people could not just write what uh, they thought about. And that's why you have all these uh, political caricatures, political pamphlets coming out of Britain, coming out of the Netherlands, uh, and in some German states, but not in France. Um, when the empire had been implemented, the educational machine, uh, the, printing, uh, the printing world was very much bent on censorship. So formal censorship was implemented by the Ministry of the Interior, uh, Interior. And they controlled all the books that were printed. And there were weekly reports uh, that, that discussed which pamphlet, which newspaper, how the newspaper should be influenced, should be, should be curtailed, should be prohibited, uh, to the extent that Fouché ran a newspaper all by himself, as did Metternich, by the way, but from the Habsburgs, we know that they controlled everything and the Prussians and the Russians. But interesting thing is that in France, Napoleon also did away with the alleged civil liberties that were installed during the uh, French Revolution, which did not have their full fling either under that time. But now in the Napoleon, and especially after 1810, 1811, the last years of the Napoleonic reign, uh, censorship was really very heavy and uh, many corrections were made. Uh, this, this, again, there's research into this. Could you um, avert, could you play the censorship, for example? Could you submit a manuscript and write it so cleverly that it wasn't really corrected? Well, sometimes you could, if you were clever enough, you could, but but still that there was a whole bureau, that there was a whole ministry uh, that devoted all its work to reading our manuscripts. I mean, if you would write an article, Zach, or write anything in the newspaper, it would be examined, it would be cr corrected, most probably it would be prohibited because it would be too, too libertarian, I don't know. Uh, and, and this affected the ordinary person uh, not any ordinary person, but a person um, dabbling in writing, being a teacher, a journalist. Uh, and there were lots of them in, in the French Empire. People were quite literate. Can you imagine if that bureau had to edit the Napoleonicist, would get taken off the air? It just wouldn't be tolerable, be completely impossible. I think um, they would be knock it would be there standing knocking at your door right now. Yeah, they probably are. Somebody just pulled up down the street. I should probably run. Um, <laughs> how you touched on this already, and this is one of the the big things that uh, I've tried to be very balanced in this podcast. <laughs> Hopefully, people will give me credit for that, and therefore forgive this one because 
this is the big contradiction I have with Napoleon, right? He inst institutes a police state. And if you turn around and say this, people go, well, yeah, but so did all the other European monarchies during this period. And yes, that's absolutely right. No, not all, not the Dutch. Uh, yeah, but the Dutch monarchy ends up being controlled in part yeah, that, that's that's right. a separate no no at that time um, well we're not discussing that time very sorry it's it's 1813 1814 then uh, the dutch constitution allows for free press more or less as do does the british constitution to some extent yeah not i mean the there's the but, but the common the, the the system yeah i mean that's the big one which is that you know people still end up going to prison don't they um yes. for for well, it's kind of construed as libel, but fundamentally it's just opposition to the, the British state. Um, but there is this point that if you critique Napoleon for the institution of the police state, people will go, yeah, but other regimes within Europe are doing the same thing. And yes, they absolutely are, certainly from my understanding, but I'm not an expert on this. But therein lies the problem, because Napoleon is meant to be so much better than the other European monarchies. Exactly and yet is using the same method. So I just want to probe into that and see where the truth of this lies, because how different is this from what's happening in other states in Europe? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure if I know all the ins and outs and, and could come up now with a systematic comparison of the censorship in uh, 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 the Habsburg regime, Prussia, Russia and France. Um, that, that's quite a difficult question. It would, it would make for a great article, though. So what we know is that in uh, Vienna, the Habsburg regime, the Habsburg Empire in France, in Prussia and Russia, there were specific bureaus, ministries within the Ministry of uh, the Interior that were completely devoted to control and read and assess every manuscript that was printed. And that they also had to uh, submit uh, um, to get, uh, how do you say that, licenses for printing uh, the newspapers and the pamphlets that they wanted to print. And people were arrested, they were apprehended if they did not take heed for that. So we, we know that that was in place in all those uh, authoritarian monarchies or empires. We also know that, that the thought, that the, the ideology behind the censorship, so what dictates the censorship was different. And this is interesting, I think. And this is something that we could discuss further because I, I again I haven't compared all the elements of, of censorship and uh, control but for the heads for the, the Prussian and the, the Vienna and the Russian uh, system of censorship it was very much um, directed against uh, identifying um, taking stock um, taking out of the the, the, the the public sphere of people that were um, writing libelous accounts on the heads of state. So it was very much the enemies of the dynasty, the people that were making ridicules of, of the kings and queens, the princes of those countries. They were taken out and they were uh, yeah, prosecutors for that. And the newspapers were being banned. But if you look in France, the question is, is it just the people that um, make a laughing stock of Napoleon? Is it just, just that? Is it just a kind of dynastic power politics again? Or is it more than that? And interestingly enough, that, that, that the manuscripts that were controlled in France, there's more ideology to it. So 
people who are too um, uh, libertarian, people uh, who complain about police tyranny, people who wanted to go back to the revolution, for example. So there's also more politics to it. But again, while I'm saying this, I think in Prussia or, or uh, Vienna, it was quite difficult to make a case for a revolution or more democratic government either. So the radicals, as they were called, and the radicals, um, revolutionaries, well, they were suppressed also by means of the censorship in all the countries alike. So you're right there. There's not so much differences there. Still, I think for Napoleon, it served his uh, military purposes. It served his expansionist purposes. Um, it also always had an eye on the gathering intelligence on what the foreign enemies were up to uh, and an eye on how he could turn foreign enemies against each other. So there was always this this war intelligence element to it, which was which wasn't there for the other countries. I think that that's perhaps the main difference. Another one I want to ask about is 1815. Quite obviously, we have the return from Elba. And this is often kind of touted as Napoleon's a reformed man. He's a different guy in 1814 to the one that he is when he returns in 1815. Is there any evidence of that when it comes to state control? Are, are we fundamentally looking at the same apparatus, the, the same methods, the same intent, or is there greater liberty um, in terms of how the Napoleonic regime runs itself do we see an end of terror under napoleon um with the return no no not really i mean napoleon pretended that he would now come back to restore the peace again and that he would ban slavery and that he would be more serious about uh, implementing civil liberties but it was still it was only a hundred days and it was quite an, a dynamic period quite an, an anarchistic period also and take for example joseph fouché he was completely, I mean, he always had been unreliable. He was really very unreliable. He was behaving like a traitor from the perspective of Napoleon. Because Fouché himself, as I said before, he was driven by this idea that, 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 that control and keeping himself in Napoleon political power was important. But he was not really an idealist by that time anymore. He did it for personal gain. So what he did, Fouché, he swore loyalty to Napoleon, but he would he also promised the king's family, the Comte d'Artois, that he would take care of the monarchy. Uh, he was head of the police, but he played factions off against each other. And he had contact with Metternich all throughout the Hundred Days. He handed secrets to the Duke of Wellington, which is one of the reasons that Wellington wanted him to keep an office, to keep his office after 1815. So he, he, Fouché kept his spy network intact, but it wasn't of much use to Napoleon. Interesting. One final one. We have to talk legacy, right? Um, and, and you are the expert to, to do this with a, a book on fighting terror after Napoleon. Um, how much of the Napoleonic model becomes a blueprint for the future of the conduct of the secret police and state control? Ah, that's a good question. Well, you could argue that the old police, this notion that there's now a secularized police that is not just supporting the king and his dynastic uh, intrigue, uh, um, intrigues, but that the secret police is now supporting the new ideology of state. 
But that is not Napoleon's legacy. It's revolution's legacy. But Napoleon kind of forged these legacies together. So it's it's a mixed legacy coming from the ancient regime, um, getting new, imbued with all kinds of new, more secular, less secular meaning through the revolution. And then Napoleon brings in the centralization and uh, hones it to become a real instrument for state-led intelligence and intelligence that, that needs to be funneled into state policies, um, military policy, taxation policies. That's what Napoleon, how Napoleon uses uh, his secret police and, and tries to um, make Fouché bid his doings. Um, and the legacy of that is, I think, the whole notion of oath police still survives after 1815 in the person of Fouché, in the person of the office of the police and political police as a concept is there to stay and never went away anymore. Uh, it was there in Austria and in Prussia as well. But that is what I try to delineate in my book. Uh, Fouché gives his knowledge and acts like a tutor for, Josef, for uh, Justus von Gruner. And Gruner is the Prussian that's being brought in by Wellington and by Hardenberg, the Chancellor of Prussia, to Paris to run the Allied Army of Occupations intelligence agents and the military intelligence agents in Paris for the Allied forces who are there for the coming three years to oversee the occupation of France. And Justus von Gruner discusses with Hardenberg, with Metternich, with Wellington, with all the main Allied powers, with the Russians, he discusses how they could profit from Fouché, how they could profit from all these channels and these agents that had collected fake news, Faust Nouvelle before, and they're now, in, now putting it to their use after 1815. So there's an, an immediate, very concrete evidence that Fouché himself, his office, his agents, his wives, are all being copy-pasted into the new regimes. It same happens, and I studied this in the Netherlands in the archives myself, when um, the French regime, uh, the Dutch were being incorporated, the Netherlands were incorporated in France uh, the last three years between 1810 and 1813. So in 1813, the French empire was pushed over the border. Netherlands were liberated by the Russians uh, mainly and by the, by the British. And the first thing that King William I, who isn't king yet, but he's the sovereign prince, well, he does on the 28th of November, 1813, that's when he lands on the beach of Scheveningen to reclaim his territory. He says, we'll keep all the police agents and all the security provisions in place, but we just swap the imperial for the royal. And he really does that. But then later on, a couple of years later, and the Ministry of Justice also remains the same in the Netherlands. It's Ministry of Justice Cornelis van Manen. He was already Justice Minister under the Batavian Republic after 1795. And he stays into office until 1840. It's the longest serving minister in the, the history of, of, of the Dutch uh, countries. It's amazing. But this van Manen also tries to keep the agents and the spies in place. He just wants to pay them less. And that's that's funny enough that you see that Napoleon was willing to, to pay, Fouché was willing to pay his spies abundant uh, money. Uh, the Dutch were not so much. So that's where the Dutch spy work started to crumble um, a bit. So the, the question is also how much money, how much energy do you want to devote to such a secret police? And that's that's 
appetite for secret police wasn't that big in the Netherlands. They just had suffered under the French repressions. That's why I, they said, well, and King William later said, I do not want to have an oath police. We are not going to stick with that French invention, but I do want to keep my spies. Beatrice, it's always fascinating having you on this show. You always knock it out the park. Folks, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815 is available from Cambridge University Press. It's not, inverted commas, one of those academic titles with a price tag that's of many, many squillions of pounds. It's one of those affordable titles. You're going to want to go and buy it after this one. If you would like to hear Beatrice talk in person and you happen to be somewhere in the south of England, on the 18th of October. In the evening, Beatrice will be delivering the highly prestigious Wellington Lecture at the University of Southampton. Uh, so that's the evening of the 18th of October. I will put a link to the Eventbrite page in the show notes. It's a free event. Um, all you need to do is book and you'll be able to attend. Um, and there'll be some regulars actually from the Napoleon Assist uh, there that evening to give Beatrice some moral support. Not that she needs moral support, she's going to knock it out of the I park. I do, I do. I'm very happy with your support. Thank you, Zach. Beatrice, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much, and please do come back again soon. I will. Thank you very much. A big thank you, as always, to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Gur Brown, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, and duo Teixeira. My commander patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rachel Stark, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.